To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. No, seriously, does anybody go to the office anymore? From American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kyle Rizdal. Tuesday, today, January 9. Good as always to have you along, everybody. A little bit of basic math, very basic, I promise, to start things off today. It's courtesy of the fresh data we got this morning from the Commerce Department. This past November, the United States exported about $254 billion in goods and services to other countries. That same month, we imported $317 billion in goods and services. You subtract the four, you borrow the one from the three. By my math, the United States had a trade deficit of $63 billion that month. Exports minus imports is, of course, the formula. And look, a $63 billion monthly trade deficit doesn't sound good. And as the presidential campaign heats up, if history is any guide, you are going to be hearing a lot more about it. So in an effort to get this out of the way before the noise really overwhelms things, the thing about the trade deficit is that, well, most economists aren't all that worried about it. Here's Marketplace's Matt Levin. The first thing you should know about a trade deficit, unless it's much, much bigger than it is now. It does not really matter to the overall U.S. economy. Scott Lincecum is an economist at the Cato Institute. He says that's mostly because when Japan sells us a sedan or France sells us a bottle of Pinot, they typically plow those dollars back into the U.S., either investing in a new factory or buying government debt. The second thing you should know is today's news that the trade deficit shrank in November. That's not necessarily a good thing. It means we're buying less stuff. Counterintuitively, a expanding trade deficit is typically associated with stronger economic growth in the United States. While the overall trade deficit number is not that illuminating, bilateral trade deficits do tell economists something about shifting geopolitics. Mary Lovely is with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. The trade deficit with China has recently narrowed. And again, people will say, well, that's great. But in fact, it's moving to other locations. Tariffs and nearshoring policies mean we're buying less from the Chinese, but more from countries like Vietnam and Mexico. Not that Lovely expects to hear that much nuance come campaign season. She says candidates use the trade deficit to paint whatever picture they want. And politicians tend to paint in black and white. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. 
The Labor Department was out with some new rules this morning about how to decide which workers are actual company employees and thus entitled to certain wage and overtime protections. Or more accurately, the White House is reinstating the old rules after the Trump administration lowered the bar for classifying workers as independent contractors. Marketplace's Savannah Marr explains what's going on there. Rideshare and delivery apps have changed the conversation around who counts as an independent contractor and whether companies are exploiting that distinction, says Vina Duval, a law professor at UC Irvine. The primary business innovation of these on-demand companies has been to say, we are connecting consumers with workers and we're just intermediaries. And that each driver is operating an independent small business. Um, I think that kind of doesn't really pass the laugh test. Terry Gerstein with NYU's Wagner Labor Initiative says those theoretical business owners have pretty limited control. You know, most importantly, they're not allowed to set their own rates. The new slash old federal rules will take that into account, along with how financially dependent the worker is on the company and whether their work is integral to its business model. Uber, Lyft and DoorDash aren't sweating it. They all said today they won't change their operations based on the new standard. It only will come into play if a worker is claiming a violation. Sam Sanders with the Economic Policy Institute says we can probably also expect lawsuits from those big tech companies. But it's not just the so-called gig economy that's subject to these rules. It's, you know, construction workers, nail salon workers, janitors, lots of other people who are vulnerable to being misclassified and who now stand a better chance at getting the pay and protections other workers get. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Wall Street on this Tuesday, betwixt and between. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. Those companies Savannah was just talking about, Uber and DoorDash, they're companies that at one point or another got some of their really early funding from what are called angel investors. The venture capital ecosystem of which those angel investors are a part has long been dominated by men, a situation that might be changing. A report from the University of New Hampshire shows that in 2022, almost 40 percent of angel investors were women. That's up from 22 percent. A decade earlier. Why and how? Liza Boyd wrote about that for Fast Company. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So people have heard, uh, I'm sure, the phrase venture capital. They might be vaguely familiar with seed rounds and how that works. This thing called angel investing, though, what is it and where does it fit in in that um, sort of pantheon of, of venture capital? So it's evolved a little bit. Back in the 70s and 80s, when there was this transition from mainframe to personal computing, that was the money that came after friends and family who threw a few dollars at you and enabled you to get the traction so that venture capitalists who were looking for performance would start to invest in you. More recently, venture capitalists have started investing earlier, but angels still play a huge role in helping small companies get off the ground Mm -hmm. and, and start producing results. I do not overstate things, uh, I think, when I say that venture capital writ large and and angel investing to some degree has been mostly white, mostly guys, and mostly not young white guys. 
That That's true. And now, as your article points out, that is changing a lot. Yeah. So the main um, barriers to entry historically were networks. This was hugely network driven. It was based mm-hmm. on who you knew and also money. And so, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s, the people who had the money were the people who had been involved in exits, and those were overwhelmingly men. We should say exits it, Exits are, for those who aren't familiar. Oh, are if you know, if your company IPOs or if you have an acquisition, mm-hmm. and those result in uh, the founders as well as top executives earning lots and lots of money. And those people were overwhelmingly men, so they were the ones who then could turn around and start investing in smaller startups. But there's been a range of changes in the last 10 to 15 years. First, there's so many more people in Silicon Valley who have money Mm -hmm. because the salaries are inflated. There's so many people who have um, been in companies that IPO'd, so they have the ability to participate. And then the last thing is that the amount of money you need in order to make these investments has shrunk enormously. I mean, Mm -hmm. it used to be you had to be willing to write a check for $100,000 or $250,000 and importantly, be willing to lose that money. Um, and now, oftentimes, you can get in just for ten thousand or five thousand dollars. Hmm. And and also, you know, to the point of these uh, millennial women, they are more connected without the traditional networks, right? I mean, there's there's social media. There's all kinds of other ways to that for them to form their own communities. In the last 20 years, you've seen an explosion of women participating in high ranks at various startups. They have money, they have their own professional networks, and they just don't need to go through the traditional gatekeepers. And candidly, many of them don't want to go through the traditional gatekeepers for a whole bunch of, you know, reasons which we could talk about. Well, let's just, just briefly talk about why they want to do it sort of on their own ish. Yeah. And just to be clear, it's taking all all kinds of forms. I mean, there's co-ed groups that are emerging on their own. There's women-only groups. So you had this progression of this group of men in the 70s and 80s. And then in the 90s, you had more formal angel syndicates. Mm -hmm. But the tone and the culture in those syndicates was very sharp-elbowed. It was very much, if you come in here, you better know what you're doing. The, The thing that's changed in a lot of the groups that are emerging today is they're much more human. They're more vulnerable. Mm. They're more accepting of people who don't know what they're doing. And it just feels more welcoming and accessible to a lot of people who, you know, don't know this in and out already. And that has to change uh, what and who gets funded, right? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of investing in early stage startups, it's really much more gut than it is science. Mm. And, you know, it's just human that you're going to be drawn to things that look like you or um, stuff that you're familiar with. And what you're seeing increasingly as um, all sorts of people get involved in this is a whole bunch of founders and a whole bunch of products and services are being backed in ways they simply weren't before. Right. And then they get their exits just to get back to where we started. And they then can go on and invest in other things that are more diverse, uh, both in kinds and types and and, uh, other founders. And it sort of becomes a virtuous cycle. Angel investments take a while to pan out. You know, 10 years is usually the framework we we say. But I think in the next 10 years, people are going to be really surprised by the number of companies, the types of companies that emerge, and also what founders look like. I think we're going to begin to see a much broader range of, of people becoming really prominent founders. 
Liza Boyd, she covers uh, Silicon Valley, innovation, and uh, and where the money comes from, too, uh, for Fast Company and a bunch of other publications. Liza, thanks a bunch. Appreciate your time. Thank you. For a long time, the better part of two decades, really, home sales in China were on a tear. Property was the investment to make. And then about two years ago, that boom turned to bust. More homes being built than there were people to fill them. Commercial property over there has gone through a rocky patch as well. In Shanghai, the center of China's financial sector, the retail vacancy rate hovers between 9 and 12 percent, depending on which report you look at. Either way, though, the 9 or the 12, it is well above where it was in the before times. Here's Marketplace's Jennifer Pack. Shanghai coffee shop owner Rose Liu avoided massive losses during the pandemic, partly thanks to a tarot card reading. The reading predicted in January 2022 her business would lose money that year. At first, I didn't believe it, because the Lunar New Year holiday was just around the corner, and that's usually good for business. Then I came across a fortune-telling master who said my business would lose money, at least $14,000 if I'm still open in March. And that scared me. And I closed shop in February of 2022. A month later, Shanghai slid into lockdown. The city would stay in various stages of lockdown until early 2023. Last spring, Rose Leo started looking for a space to lease. I still want to do a coffee shop, plus a mini bed and breakfast. And how's the hunt been? (laughs) Very miserable. (laughs) Sure, she says, there are more shop spaces available. But Rose Liu wants to set up in the priciest part of Shanghai, the former French concession, where real estate agent Gao Song works. The economic environment in Shanghai is not very good. Those who had a stable income might have... Gosh, can I talk about this? Like a lot of people I speak to, Gao Song is afraid of saying something that would get him in trouble with the Chinese authorities. I tell him, I'm not looking for sweeping pronouncements on the Chinese economy. I just want to know what's happening to his business. At first, he paints a rosy picture. The shop spaces I have are very much in demand. Sometimes a place will be rented out even before the previous tenant moves out. As Gao Song takes us around, it becomes clear why his business is doing okay. He's already gotten rid of properties that lost money. He steps out of the car and points to a four-story building. We used to rent this building, but couldn't sublease it out for six, seven months. So we gave it back to the landlord. We lost like eighty to $100,000 last year. His friend and sometimes collaborator Darren Tong has returned large properties he had on hand. Big spaces, he says, are much harder to lease. Rents have dropped a lot from five years ago, so it's not easy to do this business. Bigger spaces have cut rent by 30%. But for the type of shop Rose Leo wants, she's got to pay three times more than she did for her previous space, partly because of competition. People think shop rentals should be cheaper since the economy is not good. But it's because of the slow economy many laid-off workers and college grads want to start their own businesses now. 
And not all of these newbies boosting demand are experienced retailers. That's why realtor Gao Song and Darren Tang are trying out a new business model. They show me their latest space. It's a short-term rental, a pop-up store. They say this is a way for young entrepreneurs to test their business concept. As for Rose Liu, she's still looking for her dream space. I planned to open my business last August. Now I don't have a plan. When she does find a space, she says, the first thing she'll do is consult a fortune teller. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. Coming up. It just, boom, goes up in a flume, up into the clouds. Wait, it's supposed to do that? First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials down 157 today, four-tenths percent, 37,525. The Nasdaq basically flat, finished at 14,857. S&P 500 down seven points, about two-tenths percent, 47 and 56. The asset management company BlackRock plans to lay off 3% of its workforce. CEO Larry Fink pointed to changes in the investment industry. BlackRock shares slid about three-tenths of 1%. Albertsons posted better-than-expected quarterly earnings. The grocery chain Diz does rather still hope to move forward with a $25 billion merger with Kroger. If it goes through, the deal would combine the nation's first and second-largest supermarket chains. It is, however, a big if. The Federal Trade Commission's looking at it. Albertson shares added a half percent. Kroger picked up six-tenths percent. Natural disasters caused some $250 billion in losses last year worldwide. That's according to a new report from Munich Re, the giant reinsurance firm. Think about that for a minute. Bonds up, yields down 4.02% on the 10-year. You're listening to Marketplace. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. We started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then, we made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, we made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com marketplace to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com bonds. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdal. It was crowded here at Marketplace World Headquarters today. Eight people, a couple of contractors too. Most of the time, though, as I think I've said, not a whole lot of bodies here. And almost four years on since the beginning of the pandemic, that is the pattern in a whole lot of offices and commercial spaces. And not just in China, as Jennifer was talking about before the break. Moody's Analytics, which has data going back to 1979, reports that office vacancy rates in the United States have hit an all-time high of 19.6%. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has that one. Last year was actually a big year for people going back to the office. As Julie Whalen at commercial real estate firm CBRE puts it, 
a year where organizations kind of decided who they were going to be. A fully remote company, fully in person, hybrid. She says many companies have landed on wanting people back in the office some of the time, but not every day. Which means that there is less space that's needed because people aren't occupying space as often. Matt Anderson at the real estate-focused data analytics company TREP says, imagine you're the chief financial officer for a company that's decided it's officially going hybrid. And if you happen to go in on a Monday or Friday and you look at all this empty real estate that you're still paying rent for, I have to think that those CFOs are going to be thinking, there must be something I can do here. Can I shrink my footprint? And so I think that's part of what's been going on. The city that's seen the biggest increase in office vacancies is San Francisco, says Nick Lutke at Moody's. I think that that's not going to catch anybody by surprise. He says other cities have seen big increases too, including Austin, Seattle, and Raleigh-Durham. Around the country, there's a lot of talk of converting some of that vacant office space into much-needed housing. Julie Whalen at CBRE says it's not just talk. Today, there are more conversions than ever that are happening at a national level. But even so, she says, it's still less than one and a half percent of all the office inventory that's out there. I'm Samantha Fields for Marketplace. It could be, emphasis on could, another wet winter in much of the American West, if El Nino does what it usually does. Reservoirs out here are full, more than full, really, from the rains that we got last winter. But we are still in long-term drought. And longer term, climate scientists say it is going to get hotter and drier. And that is leading to some unconventional solutions. Nevada is investing in technology to try to manipulate the weather. More than a million dollars for cloud seeding. Marketplace's Amy Scott, the host of our podcast, How We Survive, went to check it out. About 15 miles southwest of Las Vegas, I'm bouncing up a rutted gravel road in the foothills of the Spring Mountains. Go slow because I do a lot of um, land that's off-road and I've had two pop tires. (laughs) My guide is Pauline Van Betten with Save Red Rock. The nonprofit's mission is to preserve and protect Red Rock Canyon, a national conservation area just north of here, known for its sandstone cliffs and scenic hiking trails. It's June, and after a wet winter and spring, the rocky ground is dotted with purple and yellow wildflowers. We had record rains, and everything looks a lot greener because of it. Pauline says those record rains got a boost from technology. She's taking me to see a device called a cloud seeder. We park next to a hillside and hike up to find a big metal box painted camouflage green. There's like a little weather station on top and a spire with this big oil drum. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It looks a little DIY in some ways. It is. Pauline says in the winter, scientists remotely monitor the weather here. And when a storm moves in, they can fire up the generator, which releases silver iodide into the passing clouds. It just, boom, goes up in a flume up into the clouds. The microscopic particles provide a base for ice crystals to form at warmer temperatures than they otherwise would. And those crystals eventually fall out as extra precipitation. 
Such a great, easy technique. Pauline is the reason this machine is here. She's also a real estate agent. And a few years ago, she was selling some land in the mountains north of here after the owner died. When I went to the property, I saw this great big box on it. She traced the box to the Desert Research Institute, a Nevada-based organization that's been involved in cloud seeding since the early 1960s. When they told me it was a cloud seeder, I was kind of like, that's my dream come true, a cloud seeder. We need that. The Southwest was more than 20 years into a mega drought, and Red Rock Canyon was suffering. You can't believe it was so sad. All the Joshua trees were dying. You're just looking at this national treasure and you're wondering what's going to happen when all the trees are dead. So Save Red Rock raised more than $100,000 to bring in a cloud seeder to target the conservation area. Frank McDonough leads the Desert Research Institute's cloud seeding program. Last year, he estimates cloud seeding increased precipitation in the Red Rock Canyon area by more than 2 billion gallons, or 14 percent. Frank says he often hears two concerns about the technology— First, that making it rain in one place could mean it doesn't rain somewhere else. But he says, If you didn't cloud seed, the clouds are just going to cross the area. Nothing's going to come out. And then they're going to evaporate as they move into downwind of the mountain range. The other concern is whether the silver iodide can be harmful to the environment, especially with repeated use in a particular area. And everything we've looked at historically is the answer is no. Frank says silver iodide is insoluble, meaning it stays as a solid even in water. It doesn't become like something that plants will slurp up. And if an animal's happened to eat a dust particle of silver iodide, they're just going to move right through them and poop it out. Others question its effectiveness, studies are mixed, or worry about unintended consequences, like the potential for flooding. But as climate change brings more frequent and severe droughts, the practice is growing throughout the West. Millions in federal funding is supporting cloud seeding throughout the drought-stricken Colorado River Basin. About 40 miles to our east is Lake Mead, the reservoir that provides most of Las Vegas's drinking water, and in 2022 fell to a record low. Do you see this as a larger solution for water in the West? I do. I mean, a lot of times we'll have people push back and say, just leave Mother Nature alone. But we're past that. We didn't leave Mother Nature alone. So now if we have something that can assist, I feel like we have to. She says cloud seeding won't reverse climate change or refill Lake Mead, but it might make a difference for Red Rock Canyon. I'm Amy Scott for Marketplace. There's more of Amy's reporting on solutions to the water crisis on the latest season of our podcast. It's called How We Survive, and you can subscribe at Marketplace.org or, of course, on the platform of your choice. Final note on the way out today, Jennifer was talking earlier about some of the challenges to the Chinese economy. 
Well, the World Bank agrees and then some. The bank came out today with its semi-annual report on global economic prospects. That's capital G, capital E, capital P, global economic prospects. China, a couple of wars, natural disasters from climate change, and a still slow worldwide recovery from the pandemic will put global growth this year at a sluggish, but honestly still pretty respectable, all things considered, 2.4%. Our digital and on-demand team includes Carrie Barber, Dylan Mietten and Janet Wynn, Olga Oxman, Ellen Rolfes, Virginia K. Smith, and Tony Wagner. Francesco Levy is the executive director of Digital and On Demand. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.